Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, free speech, safe spaces, and Yale. So, Richard, um, America's college campuses have been dominating the headlines the past few weeks, not least of which is Yale, where you went to law school. You had an incident there with students whipped up into a frenzy over a, a lecturer, a staff member there, suggesting that maybe the university was going overboard in trying to insulate students from being offended by certain Halloween costumes. And, and we should note that this was in response to a generalized warning about these costumes, not any actual incident. For the heresy of uttering that thought, you had students cursing at her husband, calling for them to be fired. Um, so let's just start here. Your Yale days are well behind you, but you're faculty at two universities, NYU, University of Chicago. You spend quite a lot of time at Stanford as well, and you've been in the teaching game a long time, Richard. Do you sense that something fundamental has shifted with student bodies? Are the, are the demands for this kind of coddling widespread now amongst college students? Well, I mean, it's certainly our demands. I should say to you, when I was a student at Yale, we had similar incidents. They were associated with the Black Panthers and Bobby Seale. And in many ways, when I was young, I had just gotten my first teaching position to me at the University of Southern California. I was still a third-year student at the Yale Law School. And some of these protests began. And there was one of these kind of open meetings and distinguished faculty members got up there and the students starting hauling off at them. And the faculty members just kind of retreated. And I said to myself, there's something very strange here. You have some of the best legal minds in the world, some of the most generous people in the world, and they're being beat up and they won't fight back. And I sort of vowed to myself that when I became a teacher in, in, in essentially six or eight months, I would not let that happen to me. And, you know, I've tried not to. Um, I think when I started teaching up to about 1968 to 1970, there were terrible types of situations at this time. I was at the University of Southern California and we had all the difficulties with Kent State and the killings there, all the stuff in Cambodia with the Parrot's Peak and then there were some police irregularities in Los Angeles and I remember going to faculty meetings at one time in exasperation of saying, saying, I said, I wanted to go into international relations. I would have joined the State Department, not the USC faculty. Um, <laughs> and we had that kind of problem to face, and it did result in some situations where there were so many strikes that eventually classes were canceled uh, by uh, the president of the university at that time at USC, Norman Topping, and his explanation was, if I don't cancel them, they'll keep rioting. If I do cancel them, the students who are now rioting because they are getting upset and protesting because they don't have their work done, they'll go off to the beach and we can try to resume business back in the fall. And I still remember the fall of 1970. I had the most earnest, sober, terrific students at USC. It's as though everybody were trying to sort of purge the system from all the stuff that had happened the spring before. So I have lived through this in two universities, and it's not fun. Um, fortunately, in the three universities that I'm at now, there have been no signs of any of these troubles. And I can't figure out whether it will or will not start here. I do know that if I were an administrator at any place, this would be something which would be very high on my agenda to think about. The hard question is what to do. Uh, for us at NYU, for us at Chicago or at Stanford, it's in the future tense. For those people at Yale, it's in the present and to some extent in the past tense. And I think that the options are necessarily circumscribed when you're faced with behavior which goes beyond protest and becomes belligerence. 
when people talk about cases like this in the media especially, there's a common um, error or conflation where the First Amendment and free speech rights are invoked even when they don't apply. The First Amendment, of course, binds government. It doesn't come into play with a private institution like Yale. But e even taken as a given that there's a little bit more play in the joints for a private institution like this, what's the right way for universities to think about what speech is or isn't allowed on their campuses? Well, I think the first thing to understand is that one of the reasons why it is that the First Amendment does not regulate speech uh, when you're dealing with fighting words and offensive language is that there's a good understanding in the United States that some of these intermediate institutions can actually pick up the slack on these kinds of things. And so it seems to me to be perfectly appropriate what Yale could do is to ban kinds of words on its particular campus uh, that are certainly going to be constitutionally protected. Um, so it's not to me that there's a direct parallel. But on the other hand, if you're starting to try to run a university, what you really want to do is to engage in a system in which people are put at risk with respect to their most cherished beliefs and ideals. I mean, all the great classes that I attended when I was a student essentially shook me up from my complacency. In many cases, they kind of surprised and shocked me. In some cases, they refer to dark and dismal forces in the world at large, like the nationalist forces leading up to the World War I. It's kind of terrifying. And what you had to do is to think your way through the particular problem. So A, you had some idea of how it happened and B, something that you might be able to do either domestic or internationally in order to solve it. And what you try to do is you try to develop intellectual and judgmental and character strength from facing things that you find deeply unpleasant and problematic. And the idea that you could somehow or the short circuit this process and develop critical facilities to analyze evidence and to develop arguments strikes me as being crazy. So when you start hearing people saying they don't want to be offended, my attitude is if you don't want to be offended, you don't want to come to a university, let alone to a great university. And you may give offense to others and they may give it to you, but if it's your subjective impression of what they say or do that's the arbiter of all things that other people may do, then you're just taking up too much of the space relative to your classmates and to your teachers and that this becomes an indefensible way of doing it. So I'm very much opposed to the proposition that offense that people take at some practices or ideas ought to be dispositive. And I'm very much even more opposed, as I think, as everybody else, because there's certain things that have happened on campuses, people shouting down folks in their own rooms, uh, taking over libraries of one sort or another, disrupting events, where, in fact, I mean, these are just plain old common law torts of intimidation of one kind or another. And it's not clear whether the police should respond or the university should respond. What is clear is that you cannot allow these things to go unpunished. And so when you see Professor, you know, President Solibay writing about all the stuff of Yale, about the failure of the institution on diversity after these guys have turned somersaults in an effort to try to create the ideal environment, he never once mentions, as best I can recall, that there are certain things that happen by some of these students cursing out professors and disrupting meetings, which in fact deserve censure and punishment. Uh, so I regard this as capitulation. And what's going to happen is the students who now want to attack the university will be emboldened because they know there's going to be no pushback coming from the central administration saying, you guys have crossed the line. If you wish to be responsible citizens as Yale, you have to follow the same rules on decorum as everybody else does. So the ability of Yale to impose more restrictions on speech than the uh, government can through the First Amendment is, in fact, a two-sided sword. 
it's something that binds the dissenters every bit as much as it buys members of the um, establishment, the faculty, and the students who like things more or less as they are. Richard, there used to be a concept at many American universities, in loco parentis, the idea being that the, the faculty and the administration at the schools had a responsibility to provide a version, granted an attenuated version, but of the same disciplinary oversight as parents had. That's been on the decline for a long time in higher ed and now you've got a situation, at least in some of the really explosive examples we've seen lately, where it seems like the opposite. Like the students are really running the show, making demands of the faculty and the staff. Have we tipped too far in that direction on American campuses? I think if you were a prosecutor, you would be accused of asking a leading question. <laughs> but I waive the objection and, and start to answer it. When I was in college, which was between 60 and 64, they still had parietals or limited hours for co-ed so that they had to be back in the dorms at 10 o'clock on a week night and 11 o'clock on a weekend and men were strictly forbidden from going upstairs. I can still recall sauntering over to Barnard College and you'd want to sit with your girlfriend and there was a room with six doorways and no doors so that no matter where you sat, there was always somebody walking by who could see everything that was going on. Uh, this eroded sort of around 1964 when Columbia announced that they would allow women upstairs in the dormitories, but there was a three feet on the floor rule and a book in the door rule. And some enterprising student didn't care about the three feet rule. What he did is he put a matchbox in the door and shut it, and the administration said he was in full compliance, and there went the parietal system. Um, I think it's also further complicated by the fact that the old age of adult responsibility in the 60s until the um, amendments on the voting amendments was 21. Now it's clearly 18, which means that the college years have gone from areas of supervision to areas of relative independence. And so what you do essentially is you do have students who are treated as kind of freestanding agents unless they wish to limit themselves. Now, I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with all of that so long as the students have an internal gyroscope and so long as the administrators are allowed to put in rules that protect people not from themselves but from their classmates. But one clearly does get the sense that man is a measure, meaning anybody who wants to do a protest, he's perfectly entitled to claim that the institution has to be inclusive with respect to him and then he's perfectly entitled to say that people who disagree with him have to be excluded from the institution because of their boorishness and sensitivity to racial issues or anything else. And what you can survive is a two-tier standard on these things where one group is allowed to haul off against another and the other group is not even allowed to speak up. I mean, if you looked at what was done by the Christakis, this was the most timid email imaginable. You could see this woman straining to try and get people to listen to what she was saying and what they did in effect is they just hauled off upon her as though she were doing some racial incitement circa 1930 in Mississippi. And, this is you know, the woman you at Yale, this, we should be clear. This is the woman at Yale. Yes, this is Mrs. Christophus, yes. Right. And, you know, I read the email. and I read the stuff and I saw the video of her husband and so forth. One of the things is all this stuff is now observable and if somebody wants to sort of challenge my characterization of the event, I suggest they look at the video on YouTube and I'm told that this black woman who cursed out the head of the guy, uh, Mr. Peter Christophus, the professor, she was a woman of a privileged background. And she says, I think I may even have to transfer from here, to which my answer is, please do. I mean, if that's the way in which you want to behave and you find an institution which is bent over backwards to be so utterly unhospitable, the fault, dear Brutus, does not lie in your stars, it lies in you. That is, it's something that has failed. And I mean, you know, it's unfortunately 
to watch the commentators, the conservative commentators, Bill McGurn, you know, and uh, Victor Davis Hanson and so forth, and Heather McDonald. I mean, they all haul off. And the liberal guys are basically, as best I can tell, very quiet about this. I mean, they don't go out and defend it, but they won't join in the attack. And they'll plead some kind of prudence. But uh, to my view, it's really very simple, is that what Salabay is doing is a terrible mistake. But the first thing he has to do is to establish the fact that, yeah, cares about its institutions, its values, and its practices, and will administer sanctions against those people who willfully defy them. And then you could start to talk about what adjustments you make in social life. But if you skip the first stage, then essentially there's nothing you could say by way of defense of your own self in the second. And the great tragedy is if people don't care enough about their institutions and their values and their traditions, that which took centuries to build up can be destroyed in a matter of hours or days. And, you know, this is a frightening prospect. I don't think it will come to that at Yale. I think more sober minds will prevail over time. Uh, But this is a case in which presidential leadership is sadly lacking. Well, that's the specific example of Yale. Let me ask you the the broader question, and this is what we'll close on. How broad – is the potential indictment of, of the American university here in the wake of some of these controversies. There's been suggestions, largely in the press, that you're witnessing a sort of uh, death rattle of legacy higher ed, that these are the wages of the fact that college campuses have spent the past few decades becoming progressively less serious places. Did the problem strike you as that serious? Well, I mean, I, look, you don't want to generalize from a few very irate students to a university. My guess is that if you actually went to Yale – and you found that there were a thousand protesters, some of them would be from Yale, some of them would be from other kinds of places, that there probably be a majority of students who want to get on with their pre-med studies, with their math, their physics, their engineering, even serious work in the humanities. So I don't think, in fact, a global indictment is, is appropriate under these circumstances. And certainly the students that I teach at NYU in Chicago, I mean, I'm sitting there this morning teaching the law of covenants and trying to explain how it is that they mismanage certain doctrines concerning with touch and concern. And I don't see anybody in the class standing up in protest saying, why aren't you talking about racial discrimination in housing? Um, so I don't think it's, it, it's all that universal. What I do think is that if you have a vocal minority which speaks out with aggression and with persistence and is willing to back it with threats of force, which seems to be the case in at least some campuses, including Yale, because they did have that incident with the Buckley Society being invaded by and by students from the outside and people shouting at them. I think if you let those people get away with it, then it will just bring the entire institution down. The tragedy is when you have violence, coercion, disruption, and distraction, the median student no longer represents the institution. It's the people who are pushing the envelope that become the dominant players. And I think, in effect, that the old expression, one almost has to bring it back again, about the silent majority, the phrase, if you recall, that was often used by Richard Nixon when faced with similar problems, actually has some kind of coherence in this case. I think most of those students at Yale are probably excellent students. I think, in fact, the faculty is at fault in the administration. And the real problem is not the diversity amongst the students. It's that there is, when you go to a place like Yale, very hard to find any conservative. I was at an academic conference there in November of 2012. It was a celebration of the progressive century. I don't think there was anybody else in the room 
um, who was anything other than a left-wing Democrat. There were maybe two or three other people out of a room of 70 or 80 people. Uh, you cannot survive as an academic institution talking about political issues when it turns out that faculties hire people like themselves. And so that what you do is you get the 85-15 or 90-10 split between liberals and conservatives on faculties so that the really serious academics amongst the conservative types broadly, including religious conservatives, libertarians, classical liberals, and whatever – um, they occupy the think tanks, uh, or at least many of them. And I think that that imbalance is there. And I think if you tried to get people on the left to understand that they tend to have preferences for themselves, the people who are so quick at having implicit biases found in everybody else in every other setting don't even want to acknowledge the very explicit biases that often influence their own individual and therefore their own collective deliberations. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.